0: Well, if you guys have uh, your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We are continuing our series, just preaching verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. Well, last uh, fall, we had a few trees planted in our yard. And we've been anticipating and hoping for and waiting for spring to arrive so that we can see these trees as they after have gotten planted. We can start to see them bud and flourish and grow. And uh, one of the trees, when it got planted, still had some of the old leaves on it. I mean, these were some stubborn leaves, okay? They had been hanging on for dear life throughout the whole process of getting transported to our house and planted in our yard. These old dead leaves did not fall off. Even through the winter, and I mean, we had, right, a couple of big snowstorms. These leaves did not fall off even through some of the recent thunderstorms and rain and wind, like these leaves did not fall off. But then as I was looking at the tree recently and examining it and just showing it some care and attention, because that's what trees like you to do, uh, I wasn't hugging it or anything like that, but I was just examining it, kind of looking at it. I noticed that a couple of those old leaves just fell off. And it wasn't necessarily a windy day or anything like that. It wasn't like it was the weather that made the leaves fall off. It wasn't like it was even the right season for those leaves to be falling off, right? That should have happened in the fall. And it wasn't like I was shaking it or doing anything to make the leaves fall off. And I wondered what caused those leaves to finally fall off. And as I was looking at it more closely, Uh, Ranger Britt uh, pointed out to me that the tree was starting to have new buds. You see, there wasn't an external force causing the old stubborn hanging on for dear life leaves to fall. It was an internal force. You see, down below the the surface of the ground, the roots were starting to send life along the trunk and throughout the branches and the twigs until it eventually expelled every bit of deadness that remained from the previous year. I mean, doesn't it just feel good that springtime is here? I know maybe not so much today, but yesterday, it felt good that springtime is here. Isn't there something about spring that makes us hopeful for the good things to come? Good things to come. Church, we live in the overlap of two worlds, which we talked about last week. And and because we live in the overlap of two worlds, there are still some lingering leaves of deadness that are stubbornly hanging on to us for dear life and they've held tight through the fall and the winter. But church, no external force, no religious Ritual. No amount of good deeds or righteous living will be able to shake them off. What we need is a power to well up inside of us, to work below the surface of the depth of our hearts, to send life along the trunk and the branches and twigs until it expels every bit of deadness and darkness that still remains in us. And this morning, as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, And really, really this passage here is a glorious summary and crescendo of what we've been talking about since the middle of Hebrews chapter 4 about Jesus being our great high priest. And so if you haven't been with us throughout Hebrews, you picked a good week because this is going to be the summation and the crescendo of everything we've been learning about Jesus being our great high priest. And for those of you that have been with us, if it has seemed like all we've been doing is talking about Jesus being our great high priest since November... It's because we have been. And if you've been with us the whole time and you're just now hearing that Jesus is our high priest, you've got you to engage a little bit more, all right? This is all we've been talking about. Hebrews is highly repetitive, and hopefully after these last few months now, you have grown a better appreciation and love for Jesus in learning about his priesthood. And I hope that that's something that sticks with you the rest of your life. But what we'll see next week in Hebrews ten nineteen. And what we'll get throughout now the rest of the book of Hebrews, we're going to see the author, the author now shift to exhorting us in light of all this truth that we have learned. And we're going to be given a call to faith and then some really practical exhortations. And so that's what we're, where we are heading. But this morning, as we once again think about the priesthood of Christ, we are pointed now to the good things to come. If Christ is our priest and is at the right hand of God, then church, there are good things to come. And so this morning, what we're going to look at first, we're going to look at why we needed the good things to come. We'll then see how the good things came. And then we'll look at how good things keep coming for those who are in Christ. Listen, church, if you are in Christ, good things have come and are going to keep coming your way. Now, there will be hard things that come your way. There will be difficult things that come your way. This is not a health and wealth sermon. I'm not denying the hard things that are coming our way as well. But in Christ, good things are coming your way. And the good things to come overshadow all the difficult things that still might be ahead of us. And so let's pray, let's ask the Lord to show us these good things to come, and we'll jump into Hebrews chapter 10. Father God, this is your word, and these are your people. And Lord, I come weak and needy to the task of trying to put you front and center to help us behold you rightly, to enjoy you, to see your glory and your beauty through your word, so, Lord, we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, would you move in power as your word goes forth today? May you prepare our hearts and our ears to hear and receive this word, that it may transform us and produce a good and lasting fruit in our lives. We ask for your help, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, Hebrews 10, verse 1. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. First, let's see our need for the good things to come. All right, the law of God was given in the Old Covenant, and it did serve a purpose Okay, God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make bad covenants. There was a purpose, all right? The law of God, among many things, served to reveal to us the holy nature and character of God. The law of God then also revealed to us our sinfulness and the inability of, of our hearts to be able to keep the law. The law of God revealed to us our need for a savior, a need for a rescuer, a need for a redeemer. Yes, the law of God was a great reminder to the people of their sins, but it could never deliver them from them. It reminded them of their sins, but it could never deliver them from them. It showed them the dead leaves that were hanging on to themselves, and it gave them a temporary way to deal with them, but it never gave them a power to expel the leaves leaves altogether. And therefore, what we've learned is that the old covenant was the shadow covenant of the new and heavenly covenant, which was not a new way that God dealt with his people. It was the true way that God deals with his people. And you see, we needed good things to come that only Christ could bring. The priest in the Old Covenant, they day after day, year after year, had to bring sacrifices to the altar to make offerings to the Lord because of sin. But as verse 4 says, it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Those sacrifices could never purify and bring peace to our conscience. Those sacrifices could never gain us permanent access to the presence of God. We needed something better to come. We needed the good things to come. The blood of bulls and goats could never take sins away. And starting out, we just have to first ask you, think to yourself, like, do you believe that? We have to start here. Do you you believe that? There's no way you will be able to rightly enjoy the good things that come to us in Christ if you don't really believe that you needed them to come. Do you believe the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins? Let me ask you this. Think to yourself. What are your bulls and goats? Now, I know the Canfields are here. I didn't say, who are your bulls and goats? They could could probably name those, all right? That's not what I'm talking about. In a figurative sense, all right, what are the bulls and goats in your life? What are those things that you are trusting in to get you right with God? What are your bulls and goats? I remember growing up, and honestly, even sometimes in my life recently, Whenever I would fall into sin, whenever I would turn from God's desires for me, and I would fall under conviction of a sin, I would have a guilty conscience, my first instinct, I have to confess, my first instinct has not always been to confess it to God, maybe confess it to another brother, receive his forgiveness, and rest in Christ's work on my behalf. That has not always been my first instinct, and it not always, it's not always my first instinct now. No, at times, I would fall under conviction of sin, and I would say, okay, well, I'm going to go memorize a Bible verse. I'm going to go read a book of the Bible. I'm going to go give some money away to missionaries. I'm going to go try and obey him perfectly the rest of the day. And listen, nothing's necessarily wrong with those things. Go do those things. But what was off in my heart is that I would rest in and trust in those things to make me right with God instead of Christ's work on my behalf. I was taking those things and making them my bulls and goats. And so we might not, in Franklin, in the year 2021, be tempted to literally offer up animal sacrifices for our sins. But we are tempted to rest in our religious and external sacrifices that we offer up to God to make us right with Him. And so prayerfully think to yourself, what are your bulls and goats? What are those things that you are trusting in to be right with God? Listen, those things could never purify and bring peace to your conscience. And those sacrifices could never gain you permanent access into the presence of God. If you've tried to make your own sacrifices up to deal with sin, it won't work. We needed something better. We needed good things to come. Look at now how those good things came. Look back at verse 5. Now, verses 5 through 7 are interesting because it is a quote from Psalm 40, which is a psalm of David. And David in that psalm is declaring that God doesn't want us to simply offer sacrifices. He wants us to be sacrifices. Obedience is what he is calling for. And we learn in these verses that God actually didn't take pleasure in the burnt offerings and sin offerings. Yes, yes. according to his will, he had required them for a time, but they did not bring him pleasure. What God ultimately desired was obedience. He never saw the sacrifices of the old covenant as bringing an end to sin or removing our sin. No, they were being used as object lessons pointing us to the good things to come. God doesn't just want our lip service or our outward external religious actions. He desires his people to have hearts that delight in following his ways. And what's even more interesting about these verses in Hebrews is that, yes, it is a quote from Psalm 40, but our author says, okay, yes, David said this back in the Psalms, but then the pre-incarnate Christ The eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, quotes this to the Father as he comes to earth to be born in Bethlehem. Here in this passage, we see all three members of the Trinity and how they operate as one God in three distinct persons. And I think part of the problem with us understanding the will of God and the, the obedience of humans and knowing how that plays together, part of the problem is because we don't understand our Trinitarian God rightly as we should. It is the Father's will— that the Son should come and be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. It is the Son's obedience that willingly comes and offers up himself as the sacrifice. And then in just a few verses, we will see that it is the Spirit that the Father and Son send to empower the obedience of their people. All right? And so it was the Father's will Not that the Son should come and offer up some more sacrifices for sin, but that he should come and be the sacrifice. And here we see the perfect obedience of the Son in coming to carry out the Father's will. And now because of the obedience of Christ to the Father's will, verse 10, look at verse 10, it says by that will... Whose will? Our will? No. God's will, by that will, by God's will, we have been sanctified. We have been set apart, purified. And then verse 14, skip down to verse 14, it says that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, let's try to understand what this means. That by Christ's obedience to the will of the Father, being the sacrifice for our sins, it's not as if he has made us perfect in the same way that we often think of what perfection means, okay? When we think of perfection, we think of having no fault or no failings. That's usually, you know, when we think of somebody being perfect, it's, it's that they don't have any faults or failings. That's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about when, it, when he uses the word perfect, all right? The term perfect in the book of Hebrews is talking about being complete, being whole, and arriving at a desired end. And one of the things the father desired to accomplish through the obedient death of the son was to bring us into a right relationship with him. Okay, that's the desired end for us that the son accomplished for us on our behalf. It is because of the obedience of Christ that we have been perfected. We have arrived at the desired end of being able to be in a right relationship with God. And in this way, we can say, in Christ, we have been perfected. We have reached that end goal of being in now in a right relationship with God. And this truth, while it's so glorious. I mean, this truth is so sweet. It's just dripping with grace. It's smelling of mercy. However, it can be difficult to swallow at first. Because let's be honest, grace is an acquired taste. These verses are incredibly humbling if you have eyes to see and ears to hear what God's Word is saying in this passage. We have been set apart made whole, made complete, arrived at the desired end of having a right relationship with God, we have been perfectly and definitively sanctified not because of our obedience, but because of the obedience of Jesus. And this grace This undeserved, unearned favor from God, it can be difficult for some of us to swallow because it's too good. It's too sweet. I mean, have you ever had a sweet drink after you've gone off sugar for a little while, right? It's just, it's too sweet. It's too good. You can't handle it. If you've lived your whole life under the covenant of works and under the covenant of working for your own righteousness, it can be difficult to drink of the covenant of grace. And some of you are probably even thinking right now, like, hey, I know we needed some good things to come, but this seems a little bit too good. Yes, Jesus' obedience and sacrifice are great, but, but let me offer up a couple of goats. All right, just let me, let me contribute a little bit. Let me pitch in to this thing. But church, that is not the Father's will. The Father willed that we would be perfectly sanctified not because of our obedient sacrifices, but because of the obedient sacrifice of Christ. Your goats are not that great. I don't know if I've ever said that from the pulpit, (laughs) but they're not, and God doesn't need them. They're like filthy rags in his sight, and in order for you to enjoy this cup of grace that God offers to you through Jesus, you need to be humbled, and you need to realize that you had nothing to offer. You brought nothing to the table. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary, But oh, what grace there is that God offers to people. And this is God's will. Not that religious people would be able to boast in the goats they sacrifice. Or the religious activities they engage in. Or the way they raise their kids, but that they would only be able to boast in the cross of Christ that Christ is the perfectly obedient Son who obeyed the will of the Father by becoming the sacrifice for sins we desperately needed. May He be the one that we completely rest in and depend upon, and may we stake our whole lives upon the fact that by the one man's obedience, the many have been made righteous. It's all God's grace. And it is the humble who are able to joyfully drink it down and enjoy it, but the prideful choke on it and spit it out, and they want to add something to it to make it a little less sweet. It is only the broken and contrite heart that can fully drink of this grace. And my question for you then is where do you need to be humbled so that you might enjoy more of his grace? Where do you need to be humbled? Even just ask the Spirit right now in the quietness of your heart. Spirit, show me where I need to be humbled so that I might enjoy more of your grace. When Christ offered himself as the once and for all sacrifices, the good things did come, and listen, they keep on coming. How do they keep on coming, you might ask? Look back at our passage, verse 11, Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, we've talked about this in the past, how uh, the, the priest in the Old Covenant, they had to continually and repeatedly offer sacrifices. They had to keep working at making sacrifices for sin. Their work was never done. Therefore, there was no chair in the tabernacle or temple for them to sit down on. But look at this glory, church. Look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down, showing us that the work of atoning for sins was done. It was complete. No more sacrifices for sins have to be made. And he has sat down now to intercede for us as our priest, to be our advocate with the Father, and to then rule over his creation as its true king. Look at verse 13. It says, Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, church, this is happening right now. He is reigning and he must reign until all enemies are made his footstool. But oh, what grace, that we are no longer his enemies, but we have been adopted into the family of God. But listen, if you are not a follower of Christ, your end is here shown to you. And I would plead with you to not stay an enemy of Christ, but to see the glory and the grace and the goodness and the love of our God who would die for us while we were his enemies. Paul, when he writes to the Romans in Romans 5 verse 10, we'll have it up on the screen, he writes, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Be reconciled to God. He has made a way. He has removed the hostility between you and Him and between us and one another through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What kind of love is this? That Christ would die for His enemies that they might be adopted into the family of God. Look at verse 14. Hebrews 10, verse 14, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, and and now here he's going into a quote from Jeremiah 31, which we've looked at before about the new covenant, verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In Christ, good things keep coming because Christ sat down and he sends out. All right, this passage can be a bit confusing. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, where he's talking about the new and the true covenant. And I'd encourage you to go back. If you don't understand the new covenant, go back and and watch our sermon on Hebrews chapter eight, where we talk more in depth about the new covenant and all of that. But what I want you to see in these verses today, verses 14 through 18, what I want you to see is why good things keep coming for those in Christ. They keep coming because, number one, Christ sat down, and number two, he sends out. So let's talk about those two things. The fact that he sat down means the, his work of making payment for our sins is done, and therefore we have been forgiven by God. Beautiful, beautiful truth. He sat down. The work of atoning for sins is done for those who are in Christ. He sat down. It also means that he will continue to be seated and he will rule until all his enemies are made his footstool. Good things keep coming because Christ has sat down. But he also sends out, meaning that he has sent to us the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who takes the law That was once an external duty. And he now makes it an internal delight for his people as it is written on their hearts and their minds. And he bears witness to us that in Christ, God will not hold our sins against us anymore. In Christ, God will not hold our sins against us anymore and we can experience true forgiveness. All right, so when you think about the fact that Christ sat down, that teaches us that our disobedience has been forgiven. He has sat down. And when you think of Christ sending out, that teaches that our obedience has been empowered. Sat down, our disobedience has been forgiven, sends out, our obedience has been empowered. Paul, when writing to Titus in Titus 3, verse 5, he writes, he saved us, Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Good things keep coming for those in Christ because no longer do we stand guilty before God, but as ones who have been forgiven and as ones who are now empowered to obey and delight in his commands. You see, yes, in Christ, we have been saved from the penalty and the consequence of sin. And we preach that a lot, and it should be preached a lot, and we get people to walk an aisle because of that a lot, and we should keep preaching that a lot, that Christ does save us from the penalty of sin. But you know what? He's also saving us from sin right now. He's forgiving our disobedience. He's empowering our obedience, and he's saving us from our sins, sins that have been holding on to us for so long, the sins that seem like the dead leaves that just stubbornly hung on all through fall and winter, and by no external religious activity of our own could we ever shake them off. Because it's only the power of the Holy Spirit that he sends into our hearts that brings life to our body, that sends life along our trunk and branches and twigs of our lives until it expels every bit of deadness and darkness that still remains in us. Some of you think that by your own self-discipline, you can stop sinning. You might be able to direct yourself from one sin to another, but you could never take sin away. You might be able to go from an outward immorality to an inward prideful self-righteousness. Half of Franklin could do that. That's not Christianity. Only Christ can take away your sins. Only the truth of him sitting down and sending out will bring the good news to come to you and to me. And one of the dead, dark leaves that clings so tightly to many of us is the sin of being unwilling to forgive. Sure, we we love the fact that in Christ we can experience generous forgiveness of sins, but we oftentimes can be so stingy in extending forgiveness to others. Now, to forgive someone, it means to let go of whatever it is you could hold against them. To forgive someone is to to let go of whatever it is that you could hold against them. And listen, some of you are holding on to sin that has been committed against you. And I don't want to downplay that or take this lightly or say that it's easy to stop doing that. but, But because some of you have had horrific, damaging, abusive, hurtful sins committed against you. And you need to hear, you need to know that, that God will deal with every sin. It was either dealt with on the cross or it will be dealt with in future judgment and so no one got away with anything against you. But if you are in Christ, there are good things to come. And one of the good things is to come is that the Spirit is going to well up inside of you, maybe even today, and empower you to forgive that person who sinned against you. And I'm not talking about sweeping it under the rug. I'm not talking about keeping it in the the dark corners of your heart and just trying to forget about it. I'm talking about bringing it out into the light and taking it to the feet of Jesus and letting it go. Letting it go. Grab a brother or sister, bring it out into the light. Ask God's Spirit to empower you, and then give it to Christ. Let it go. Holding on to that is destroying you. God's Word exhorts us in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, verse 31. God's word says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, we often treat others the way we think God treats us. Someone who struggles to forgive is probably not enjoying the forgiveness God has offered them. Someone who is harsh and judgmental and demanding is probably viewing God that way as well. Someone who is impatient and stingy and annoyed with people it probably lives with the false and sad view that God is impatient stingy and annoyed with them But haven't you met people who are just gushing with life who are gracious and gentle, who are quick to forgive and not hold a grudge. Church, those are the people who are abiding in the true vine of a God who has been gracious, generous, and forgiving with them. And so when I meet someone who is being stingy with forgiveness, I'm first concerned that they have a wrong or false view about God, that they are not beholding him as they should. Church, Christ has obediently offered up himself as the sacrifice for sin. You don't need to sacrifice a relationship because of it. You don't need to sacrifice love for someone because you want to hold something against them. You don't need to sacrifice your sleep and emotional energy trying to hold on to the sins of people any longer. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, let that go today and trust that Christ will right all wrongs, and trust that his ways are better than our ways, and he's called us to forgive others as God has forgiven us. There was once a great and generous and gracious king who had a servant that owed him 10 billion dollars. I mean, can you imagine owing someone $10 billion? You personally, can you imagine that? Now, I don't know how this guy accrued such a debt, but it was an insurmountable a debt because the servant only made 20 bucks an hour. And so he started to feel the crushing weight of being under a debt that in his own strength and in his own lifetime, he could never pay that debt off. And since he could not pay, the king ordered for him and his family to be sold into forced labor in order to pay off the debt. But the servant fell on his knees before the king and pleaded and begged for mercy. And he said, please be patient with me. I'll pay it all back. I wonder if that's how some of you first cried out to God when you came to him. you had a small view of grace. You thought grace meant God just being patient with you while you paid it all back. But the great, generous, gracious king said, no, I'll show you what grace is. I'll do you one better than that. I'm not just going to be patient with you until you pay it all back. I'm going to forgive all the debt you owe. He just let it go. Nothing left to hold against that servant. And the servant was ecstatic. He runs out of the king's presence to go tell his wife and family they don't have to be sold into forced labor. And on his way, he runs across another fellow servant who owes him $10,000. Now, $10,000 is still a good chunk of change, but he's just been forgiven $10 billion. And the guy who owed him $10,000 pleads with him and says, Please be patient with me. I will pay it all back. However, the servant who just received forgiveness refuses to forgive him, has him thrown in prison until he could pay back the debt. Jesus told a similar parable in Matthew 18, and he concluded it with this. In Matthew 18, verse 33, the king said, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Church, we needed good things to come. In our sin, we were enemies of God. We hated God. We hated one another. We needed good things to come. We needed an ocean's amount of grace and forgiveness to come. And when Christ came, we saw the good things come. That through His perfect obedience of offering up Himself, He was the ultimate and final sacrifice for our sins. He paid the debt that we owed so that we might be, given, so that we might be forgiven from our sin and restored into a perfect, complete, and whole relationship with God. And now that Christ is seated down at the right hand of the Father, He sends out His Holy Spirit so that we might be empowered to delight in obedience, specifically the obedience of forgiving one another. Church, don't try to live life Don't try to get right with God. Don't try to forgive one another by your own strength. Don't sacrifice any more bulls and goats to pay for your sins. Don't plead for more time to pay God back. Ask that God would allow you to experience the Spirit applying to you what Christ accomplished for you. And you can ask that right now in the quietness of your own heart. Oh God, would you help me experience the Holy Spirit applying to me what Christ has accomplished for me? And let the Spirit of God work below the surface in the depths of your heart to send life through you until it expels every bit of deadness, darkness, and unforgiveness that still remains in you. Let that let that go. In Christ there are good things to come. Let's pray.